Perhaps two of the most misunderstood words in all of religion, and specifically Christianity, are faith and believe. If you set aside the religion and spirituality side for a moment, those words have a certain meaning, whether it's at home, in the marketplace, in your relationships with others, and really every area of culture. But they can sort of be hijacked when they get dropped into theological or religious contexts. In the world where we all live, work, and play, we believe based on evidence. For the most part, you and I make decisions about what we believe based on what we see, read, and experience. And we also believe based on the evidence or based on the confidence of the person delivering the information. From time to time, though, there is conflicting information. You get two different pieces of information and you don't know which one to believe. For instance, this might be the most important question that I asked today. Is coffee still good for us? Yes or no? That most of us have confirmation bias when it comes to this and or most other issues in that you only listen for the information that confirms what you already believe. So when it comes to coffee, most of us probably only pay attention to the research that confirms what we already want to believe. The point is this, all of us in our real world experience know what it means to believe something and to have faith in someone. And what we're going to discover today is that the words faith and believe do not necessarily take on special meaning when they refer to Christianity. Religious faith and belief are sometimes divorced from reason and confused with hope. Faith and belief can be sort of removed from the idea of reason or evidence. That we say things like, I hope she shows up. Well, did she show up last time? Well, no. How about the time before that? Well, no, but I still hope she believes. That's hope, and hope is good. We need hope. But hope and belief or confidence are different concepts. Oh, unfortunately, when it comes to Christians, uh, some of us grew up hearing things like this. Well, you just have to believe, brother, or you just have to take it by faith, sister. And I think that falls short of what we're going to see today and the next few weeks leading up to Easter. What Frank Turk says about this is kind of helpful. Frank lectures and speaks on college campuses. Well, back when we used to do that kind of thing, um, he says this. The reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. This might be true for you, or it used to be true for you, that the reason that college students, young adults, senior adults, sometimes are so easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never actually talked into it to begin with. Uh, some were probably told, you just have to believe. Uh, maybe that's what you were told by your pastor, Sunday school teacher, a grandparent or friend, and so you just believed. But then you grew up, and, and someone talked you out of it. Or the author of the book you read talked you out of it. Or, or you watched some videos, saw a debate, or, or listened to a lecture, and they talked you out of it. So today we're going to talk about what or who points us towards confidence in God. In this series that we're in, we've, we've said that Jesus is really known for many different things. Uh, some true, some not so true. And we're looking at Jesus from several different perspectives to sort of see what Jesus was also about. We started two Sundays ago noting the huge cultural and generational shifts happening all around us while looking at an instance where Jesus interacted with someone who was quite different from himself. The big principle about Jesus and for us dealing with a world of change all around us is that Jesus is also a bridge to people. That Jesus followers should break down barriers and set aside their preferences to meet people where they are rather than expecting them to come to us, that we need to be bridges that connect with unchurched people in the natural rhythms of their lives. And then last Sunday, Sophie shared about Jesus' baptism and wilderness experiences, along with him starting proclaiming the good news of God. 
And Sophie highlighted that while Jesus received his identity as the Son of God, Jesus is also human. You can watch any of these messages on our YouTube channel. Today, though, we're going to go look at John, who wrote the Gospel of John. John's going to show us that there is more to Jesus than just faith and belief. John left his father's fishing business to follow Jesus, not because of faith, but because of what he saw in Jesus. And eventually, John would write down, or probably dictated, the Gospel of John, which is also known as the Good News According to John, that he documented not just what he saw and experienced with Jesus, but why it happened and why he wants us to know that it happened. At the end of his gospel, John gives us his thesis or purpose statement for why he wrote it. And here's why John wrote this. Uh, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And when he says in this book, he's not referring to the Bible, but he's referring to that document that John was dictating or writing. And then John's going to tell us the purpose that he only referenced these specific signs. Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That the purpose that John documented these miraculous signs was not just so that we would know what Jesus did. The purpose was was so that we may believe. But he didn't just tell us to believe. John gave us an opportunity to experience Jesus just like he experienced Jesus. In such a way that you will have confidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He doesn't just tell us what to believe, but he builds a case for why we should believe and really why he ended up believing in Jesus. Basically, he's saying, if this sequence of events and evidence was powerful enough for me to trust in Jesus, then I'm hoping that it's powerful enough for you too. So a question for discussion. We've all done this, but what is something that you once believed without any evidence? Why did you believe it? John organizes his entire account around seven signs. John seems to choose the word sign rather than miracle. And it seems he was trying to say that the supernatural acts and events of Jesus, you know, that sort of healing and walking on water, were not just random acts of kindness or just sort of showing off. These were signs that pointed to something, specifically Jesus' identity. Now, don't get me wrong, it's very easy to get enamored with the miracles, especially when you need a miracle. And John seems to know that that's a mistake. That John would indicate that these miracles aren't daily occurrences just for the sake of doing something that they have a purpose, which was to point people to the identity of Jesus. And John tries to help us not become too enamored with the miraculous, but to become enamored with the person the miraculous pointed to. So sign number one, everyone probably knows for one reason or another. And in fact, this sign was probably so well known in John's time that he actually doesn't even tell us the miracle because he is probably assuming his audience already knows what happens. And so the first sign was turning water to wine. We're going to be in John chapter 2 if you want to follow along in the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, you can head to bible.com app to download the app. Once you have the app, click the more menu option in the bottom right corner, then select events and you can find our church. Uh, the notes and verses will also be on the screen as well. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And it seems that Mary, Jesus' mother, was part of the hosting committee for the wedding, or maybe she was a part of the catering crew that was there. Continue on verse 2. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Which probably means that John, who gives us this account and wrote this down, was there when this happened. And in this culture, wedding celebrations many times went on for days. 
but what happens next would be a huge problem in that culture, but also in our culture if it happened at your daughter or son's wedding, or maybe your own wedding. Verse 3, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. It's like running out of whatever is going on at your wedding that's expected by the guests, whether that's the main course, the cake, whatever else. And Mary, again, in some capacity at this wedding, she turns to Jesus. And somehow Mary knows that she can lean on her very resourceful son. And somehow she knew she, that he could do something about this, which leads us to several questions. What was, what was it like to parent Jesus? If they ran out of milk, they obviously couldn't just run down to the grocery store in those times. So do you turn to your son and say, uh, Jesus, like, could you do that thing where you get us some more milk, whatever that thing is? Somehow she knew, though, it was okay to turn to Jesus in a crisis. And so Jesus responds, dear woman. Now, to our modern ears, this might sound a bit offensive, but we miss what is behind the word woman. Jesus is in a more formal setting, right? So he doesn't want to just say, mom. It's like he's saying, my lady. So verse 4, continuing on. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Like, Mom, I'm here to save the world. I'm not here to save this wedding. And basically, Jesus is saying that this was not how he planned on going public. Verse 5, But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Doesn't that sound just like how a mother should respond? And then it just seems like she just walks off. And yet, she seems to confirm that thing that many of us have heard. Do what your mama says, right? Verse 6, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And this wedding was hosted by a family with some wealth who were probably or obviously Jewish. Uh, they wanted to be good Jews, so they had these jars for ceremonial washing as required by the Jewish law. Now, the first century application of that Jewish law required specific washings before doing certain things. So these large stone jars are sitting there empty and these stone jars are also symbols representing the Jewish law, the Old Covenant, and the traditions that the Jews understood as the arrangement between them and God. But Jesus is coming to fulfill this old arrangement and establish a brand new arrangement. And in a way, these jars represented the entire sacrificial system that was temporary for the Jews, and Jesus was bringing a new system and a new arrangement. Now, we don't know if Jesus decided to do this in the spur of the moment or if it was prearranged, but Jesus goes public in this moment. And he goes public with items that would soon be replaced as a way to point to the new arrangement between God and all of humanity. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. Now, if you don't know, the master of ceremonies was basically like the head waiter who was responsible for what was served, when it was served, and who got served first. Continuing on, so the servants followed his instructions when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine. Now, pause for just a second. Imagine you're one of the servants in the story. You take some water to the master of ceremonies for him to drink? Like, why would Jesus tell us to do this? This doesn't really make any sense. And again, John sort of assumes that everyone probably knows the story because he doesn't come out and actually say when Jesus changed the water into wine. He sort of just references that it happened. Verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Verse 10, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. 
basically usually in a situation like this you you bring out the expensive wine first and then after people have had too much to drink people don't care what it tastes like so you bring out the lower quality wine now one quick disclaimer about the elephant in this story the alcohol now i want you to please hear this as someone who cares about you and about those around you as a pastor i try really hard not to be against many things because unfortunately many times christians are known more for what they're against than what they're actually for now i'm not against alcohol as it's very clear jesus used alcohol in this miracle and while i'm not against alcohol i am against some of what alcohol can do i'm against seeing kids neglected or abused because of alcoholic parents i'm against families being torn apart because someone drinks too much i'm against friends losing loved ones because of drunk driving i've seen this happen personally in my family and in my students as a student pastor I don't think drinking alcohol is a sin for everyone, but if it has controlled you or you aren't sure if it's controlled you, it might be a sin for you. And again, please hear this as someone who cares about you and those around you. Don't use this miracle to justify your alcohol problem. Okay, enough about that. Back into the story. Basically, the master of ceremonies was saying, you've done something by bringing out the best wine now that I've never seen before. You saved the best until now. And God also saved the best until now. And Jesus used this as a way to say to the world, something better has come. This was more than a miracle. This was a sign. It pointed to something and someone that these wedding guests and servants wouldn't fully understand until later. And the story wraps up with this, verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And why did they believe in Jesus? Because from John's account, Jesus didn't tell them to believe in him. There was a reason to believe. That from the very beginning of John's gospel, John sort of establishes this paradigm that doesn't expect people to believe without evidence or confidence in the person who brings the information. And unlike John who wrote this, our faith does not come by actually seeing Jesus. Now, you might disagree because you might say, well, like, I didn't believe in God, Jesus, or anything. But then I saw that thing happen, and I believed. Now, I'm glad that happened to you, but most of us might relate more to something like this. I met this person or this couple, and I saw their faith, and eventually I believed. That most of us come to faith by seeing other people point to Jesus or hearing about Jesus. And on top of that, we're all sort of invited to believe in Jesus and what he did based on the testimony of people who were there, people like John. In fact, John would come back from his experience with Jesus, even though there was bloodshed and much heartbreak, and John would also believe. John believed because of what he saw, and John would give us the amazing words that many of us see in so many different places. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. Now we might say like, wait, like whoever, like whoever you know John, or like whoever anyone, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would receive eternal life. And John would say this because of what he saw in Jesus, what he experienced in Jesus, and what he heard from Jesus. John would say, I saw Jesus, and, and even though I was a simple fisherman, I thought this was so important that I wanted to document my experience for you and for future generations. Not simply so you would know what happened. It, it's bigger than that. That these signs, these miracles, these conversations, these interactions, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. 
So I have two challenges for you. Number one, before this series is over, my hope is that you would believe and have life in Jesus' name. Not because you just had faith in faith, but because you heard it from John, who was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Maybe because you saw Jesus' love in someone else around you who believes in Jesus. Number two, consider what or who your life is pointing to. And this is a good question for all of us, including those of you who may not have believed in Jesus yet. Because each of our lives are pointing to someone or something. If we haven't thought about this before, it's very likely we are pointing people to ourselves. That when people look at what we're all about, many times it all comes back to us. When you are looking at your bank account, when you're looking at your calendar on your phone, when you're looking at your social media posts, more on that after Easter, when you're looking at your interactions with friends or family, do they all point back to you or do they point to someone else? Jesus was a lot of things, but Jesus is also a sign pointing to God. So what are you doing to point people to Jesus? Which people are you actively pointing to Jesus? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story that really challenges us in several different ways. Challenges really all of us for a variety of reasons. But God, for those of us who maybe look at our lives and aren't sure that our lives are really pointing to you or, or aren't really sure that we have faith in sort of you at, with evidence and, and reason behind it that we sort of just maybe believe because somebody told us to believe or because we just trusted somebody else. God, would you help us to take a look at our lives? Would you help us to, to see if we really have faith in you that can give us life for eternity? That you would help us to, to answer some of the difficult questions that maybe we have or, or to seek out answers and maybe to find out that there really is evidence to support belief in you. And God, for the rest of us that maybe already are followers of Jesus, would you help us to think about what are our lives really pointing to? We might have belief in you, Jesus, but are our lives actually pointing people to you? Are our words pointing people to you? Are our actions pointing people to you? And then God, who are we pointing to you? Would you help us to be intentional about this, just like it seems like you were? That you didn't just do random miracles or perform signs and wonders just to do that, but you did it with a purpose, to help people who were far from you know about you and help direct people and point people in your direction towards God. So God, would you help us to do that as well? Would you help us to think about right now the faces and the names of people that we could be pointing towards you? And God, would you help us to find ways to be intentional about doing that? God, would you give us the wisdom to know, to know what to do with what we've heard? And God, would you also give us the courage to actually do it? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.